2: The perception is things are wonderful when inside it's quite the opposite and that's a lesson for humanity that's not just something we are going to discover about famous people it's the way that we're going to look at everybody that there's the outside and there's the inside.
1: Welcome back, Comeback Stories Family, to another episode. I'm excited to have this guest on today. You may recognize him like me. The first time I saw him was TRL host back oh. in the day from The Voice today show anchor. Uh, a guy that I met and interacted with a few weeks ago with the, the Colts kicking the stigma event for mental health. I want you guys to welcome Carson Daly to the show. Carson, how you doing, man?
2: I'm doing good. D. Waller, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it, Donnie. Good to see you. It's crazy you're I'm doing well, man. It's really a pleasure to be here. You must have been two years old watching me on TRL back in the day, but it's kind of you. It's, it's kind of you to, to shout out MTV back in the day. Those were the good days of New York, man. Yankees were winning. Hip-hop was thriving. Being in the club with Jay and all, it was such a fun time. But anyway, man, we're talking uh, the real talk here and I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, man. I, I can't wait to show these people the other side of you today. And uh, we'd like to get going right in. Uh, we want to know what was growing up for you like. You know, growing up was good for me, man. I grew up
2: in Southern California. I had a great life, great childhood, very blessed, very aware of my blessings and my great family. I lost my dad when I was young, but my mom remarried quickly to my stepfather. So we were a Brady bunch. I've got one natural sister. I've got eight stepbrothers and sisters, and I got two half brothers from my biological father's first mother. And just, I don't know, man, the influence of your parents, I just think is so important. And I just feel especially now being a parent, it's like every day I'm more and more aware of just how lucky I was to get good, solid parents, including my stepdad, who would go to be like my, he passed away just a couple of years ago. I lost my stepdad and my biological mom and I miss him a lot. And yeah, I'm just, just lucky to have had them in my life. They're a big reason why I you know think and feel the way I do.
1: Mm, that's great. We like to highlight what may have been a possible early memory of pain and how that may have impacted people going forward in their story? Would that early memory of pain for you be your father's death, or would it be something else? Probably the Raiders losing in the Super Bowl in the '80s. That
2: was a really so hardcore source of pain for me. <laughs> Not really, big fan. Uh, yeah, like my dad died when I was five, but I didn't really, you know, you asked about the pain. I, it's painful looking back now, but I was so young. I don't think I really recognized it to be pain at the time. It was just a hard truth. And and again. When you're young, you're adaptable, you're forced to wake up and move on and go to school, and, which in some ways I think is harder because the pain of losing somebody, doesn't, it doesn't go away, it, it, it hides. And so you're forced to deal with that at some point. And probably the stuff we're going to get into, I would imagine, as I've tr- had a real good self-examination of my mental wellness where that particular point of trauma in my life has resonated in the last 40 plus years of living. But no, I don't recognize it to be a painful thing, more unfortunate, but that pain would be dispersed out later in life. But, but honestly, yes, about a childhood, it felt, it was really great. I really had a great childhood. I grew up surfing, going to the beach. I went to Santa Monica High School where we went surfing at lunch and it was very idyllic. Public school, ton of kids, 800 in my graduating class, was lucky that I went to a high school that had a good snapshot of life. You know, my my parents talking about, hey, this is what life looks like. There's always somebody richer, poorer, taller, shorter, fatter, you know. So I just grew up with a nice slice of of variety and interacting with lots of friends and different walks of life. So I really, I'm I'm thankful for my childhood. Mm,
1: That's great. Uh, Sounds like you had great uh, people around you giving you a glimpse of what life is like. Who would you say was your first real teacher, someone that taught you about what life was like, and really molded some of your morals and values.
2: There's a lot of them. My earliest, like when I think mentor was Mr. Simon's, my fifth grade teacher. He was the first sort of administrator slash non parent in my life at that age that made a real mark. That here I am, so many years talking about him. He was one of those t- exemplary teachers who taught you more than just X's and O's and 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 five plus five and arithmetic and reading. And he used to call me a jive turkey and. He, he spoke he taught very metaphorically it was never really about the lesson that we were learning he always had a way to work in another little life lesson and I'm like that now when I talk to my kids I'm always looking for teachable moments everything's the iceberg effect it may seem like some a, a, an issue on the surface but the but underneath it is such a greater place to explore and learn and I think he was the first person that gave me a little glimpse on how to think like that. And then certainly my mom was my greatest force in my life. She was from a small town. In, uh, her, her my grandfather, her father was a Green Beret. He was, so my mom You know, went to kindergarten in Japan during the war in Sendai. Then she went to high school in Bad Toll, Germany. She's from North Carolina, of course, from Fort Bragg. So we come from a long line of military. And I think there was a lot of that influence too. Not that she was militant at all. She was an actress, actually. We moved to California to be an actress and ended up getting into radio and media, which is interesting. That's where I went into. But she was somebody that had a lot of my life lessons, a lot of my, the way I frame kind of life was from my mom, as far as you can do anything, you can be anything, a lot of positive reinforcement. And then my stepdad was very practical. He was an Italian entrepreneur. He was like, you ain't going to get jack shit in this life. unless you work for it. He was the work ethic. I used to hear his shoes clunking down the hallway at five in the morning. So I respected him, but my mom was like, shoot for the stars. So I had two parents, so one very practical, very get to work. When I was 12, I had a job and I've been working ever since. That was because of my dad. But if I wanted to be the president of the United States of America, I believed that I actually could because of my mom's influence.
1: I love the, the balance from the parents. You get the, the, the sternness, but you also get the belief as well. And I thought like that was great to help propel you forward. How did you first get involved in wanting to do TV and what did those early days look like for you?
2: So I wanted to be a professional
1: golfer. When I was 12 or if I was 13, I, my
2: stepfather was a golfer and that was our time in getting to know him was very valuable in playing golf. Now in Southern California in the late 80s, nobody cool played golf. Kelly Slater was a, went to my school, the world number one surfer. I grew up playing golf with Tiger Woods, who's one of my best friends growing up. Tiger and I carpooled together. I'm three years older. I was like his chaperone. So Golf was really my thing, but me and tiger and Jason Gore and Jerry Chang, a couple other guys in Southern California were the ones that were playing golf in the summer. So there's only a few of us, but thanks to Michael Jordan and what was happening in the, in, at that time and the Nike ads, and certainly Tiger once he left Stanford, golf got real cool real quick. That was my passion. I, I got a golf scholarship to college. And, and so I wanted to play golf. And I tried to play in a long story short, I, I tried to play on a mini tour. And at the end of the day, I just don't think I had the mental fortitude or the game to really go pro. So I thought maybe there's a difference between a golf professional and a professional golfer. I thought maybe I'll you know be a country club pro. That sounds pretty good. I ended up rekindling an old relationship with a guy named Jimmy Kimmel. When I was 18, trying to be a pro golfer, we had met prior in life through our families having a vacation in Maui. It's a whole crazy story. Jimmy was in radio. Jimmy, of course, hosts late night. Jimmy came alive on ABC now and has for years. But at the time, he was just a struggling DJ at uh, 23 in Palm Springs. We rekindled and he said, hey, why don't you intern for me and I'll let you go play golf. We ended up becoming very close. I fell in love with radio right as a time when golf was just not realistically the thing for me. And the truth is, Darren, and I always make this joke, but if you're drug free and show up on time in the radio business, you can rise the ranks very quickly. And that's what happened to me. I was dedicated and I ended up just kind of, I lived in six cities in California. I ended up at the world famous K-Rock in Los Angeles. I was the nighttime DJ and assistant music director. You know, I was like 24 and I was like, forget the PGA tour, man. I just hit the big time. And so my life really from then has just been really just chasing being close to music.
3: It's so cool, Carson, how early on you set the stage and talked about the foundation of your parents. Like Darren mentioned, I I was hearing the same thing, this sweet balance of the work ethic. And at the same time, shooting for the stars, growing up in LA and Hollywood, and how it's it shaped you and really gave you the armor and the foundation to get to where you're at today. The reason you're on our show with us is because you've been very outspoken and public about your own mental health. And I know you had mentioned like for 20 years, you struggled with this at times, it was debilitating anxiety and this panic disorder, and you actually never knew it and you never knew how to define it. So can you just walk us through how that grew, how it built up, how you came to know of it and what you're doing about it now?
2: It's weird because it's almost like a Monday morning quarterback thing. No pun intended, Darren, but like it, I never knew that so many, I know now because I'm so well-read and I've gone to therapy and it's like, now it's become an obsession and a practice and I talk about it with others. And so I have so much more insight and clarity now that it's only been through my own sort of current journey, which really has only been a couple of years old as far as being out in the public with it because it came up on the Today Show one day. Only through that deep exploration do I now look back and realize I was one of the tens of millions of Americans and people that have suffered in silence. And I think about all the trips that I took where I was fight or flight and running or masking with you know, alcohol or all the feels, all the things. I look back now and I go, man, that's that was panic. That I mean, was panic. That was anxiety. This whole sort of worriness that I've had of Throughout my twenties, you know, as I was on the beaches of Cancun and, and with MTV and Jamaica, and all, my life was going so great. On the inside, there was this great sort of wrestling. I, I felt like a country song. I would keep saying to myself, "I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired." Like I was so sick and tired of being nervous. But I felt like I was. Maybe it was my astrological sign because I'm a Cancer, and I was always a worry ward. So people always told me, "Oh, you're Cancer. You guys are worriers." And I thought, "I just, I'm just a worrier." But it wouldn't be until years later that I would look back and. and Discover my own biology and my own genealogy to realize who I am and what my mental status kind of was and how I can A, acknowledge it, B, treat it like I would something physical, define it, and then have the courage to, to tackle it. And yeah, as I look back now, I realize I, I was, was so anxious and so I had my panic attacks. Like I thought I was going to die. I, on an airplane, I wanted the times I wanted to jump out of the plane. And I just didn't know what any of it was. I just thought I was going crazy. I thought something was wrong with me. And uh, it wasn't until, and it's so funny because I tell people now all the time, just talking is everything, just hawking, like what I'm doing, just verbalness. It's really, it can unlock so much. And I was talking to a friend of mine in New York, John, and he was like, like looking at me, like, we'd never had this conversation. Do you you have anxiety? And I was like, that anxiety is not a thing. Like my dad. My practical father, anxious isn't, a, it's just an adjective. Like it just means you're, it's not a clinical term, but that's how I grew up. So I'm a product of the eighties. And we didn't talk about stuff. Like that. I grew up in a household as great as it was. That was like, in fact, this is how I messed up my, it, it, to, to knock on the, the air that I grew up in. I remember we were talking about suicide and my parents' position was that's a selfish thing to do. Well, that's what I was taught. That's an easy way out. And what a sad state of affairs that my folks in their generation, that's what they were working with. And unfortunately, I believed that until I was educated enough to realize how wrong that is, of course. So yeah, a lot of these learned things for me were later. and So I went to a, a great guy in Westwood, Dr. Oakley, who led the psychology department at UCLA, which is world-renowned. I walked in and he did an evaluation on me. He's like, man, you yeah, have Generalized panic. Uh, GAD, you are positive for uh, panic disorder, and we're going to start cognitive therapy, 16 weeks. Let's go. And Donnie, I was so happy, and you guys might know this from the day that you you had a real turning point. The best day for a lot of us who have mental health scenarios is when you're diagnosed. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I was like, oh my God, it's a real thing. My father was wrong. Like, anxiety isn't. It's okay to be grown up and be scared to death. Like. Something's going on. And so that was the beginning of, and that's, that was probably 15 years ago now. That was a great awakening.
3: Oh, there's so much in what you said. A couple things yeah. I wanted to unpack was in the beginning, you just talked about, I always say, until we get right on the inside, nothing on the outside is going to feel great. And as you're sharing, and I'm looking at Darren and I'm looking at you, and I get, I get emotional even talking about this because it is so important for other people to see themselves. Even in people like yourself, even in people like Darren, we're on the outside, we can put certain celebrities and people on pedestals like they have it all together. And to me, there's nothing more meaningful and more impactful than the words you're sharing. It's the reason Darren and I are connected because he was public about his sobriety. I was public about my sobriety on a way smaller stage than you two, but it's the reason that we're here. And it's, oh man, I just get so grateful even just... um, Listening to these words, these are the conversations that matter the most to me today.
2: But you know what's weird, Donnie? Is and I don't know Darren well enough to know if you feel this way, but I feel like you do because you reek of humility. I'm not saying that I do, but to this day, I don't. Perception is such an interesting thing in society because people watch this and they see me. And of course, I see it when people interact with me. Like they, they have a perception of people who are on television or play sports or do whatever. You have a perception of everybody. And and I think the one, the one thing that I've been most excited about in this sort of public talking about this is to really break that stigma. And I like it when people look at me and they're just like, look, I played like Britney Spears and pop songs for a living. And I'd go to a bar. mean, I was like 25, I worked at a rock radio station. My personal taste of music is like hardcore New York hip hop and like rock and roll. And, but I, my job was to like be TRL and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And I loved it. When I would meet people in real life, they'd be like, oh, you're the guy that plays Britney Spears. What a loser. You're You're so lame. Like, and I'd just end up maybe buying them a beer. Or just I'd, they, They'd see this, just who I am. I'm like, hey, man, that's why I pay my rent. Dude, I'm lucky to have that job. I have the greatest job. It's just a job. And I, now I'm here just hanging out with some friends. And my whole life felt like when I met people, and people got to know me, maybe through radio also as well, th- that I could sync up the guy they I saw on TV with the person that I am. And so talking about mental health and wellness and my struggles, I'm so happy to do it because I know that people, like I've said this, On The Voice, the show that I do now, when we go live, it's pre-recorded for 75% of the format, but we go live. When you see me on television on Monday and Tuesday night in front of 10 to 15 million people live, and I look like, Blake, what'd you think of that performance? Or is that enough to win this whole thing? Sometimes you'll see my left hand, it's in my pocket. I'm grabbing the flesh on my skin so hard. I'm gripping my body because inside, I could be, and it's happened at times. It's not all the time. Experiencing the worst panic you could ever imagine. I just have the ability to just still do my job, but inside, in that moment, I'm so scared, and I want to run off that stage. And it doesn't. I don't care about TV. I don't care about money. I don't care about fame. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want to crawl up in a ball like a little baby and be with my mommy. That's what it feels like. So. I love talking about it so people hear it. And when they see it, it will just help, hopefully, break that perception of what you think. You see these gladiators. Darren and I have talked about NFL players on Sunday. We put them up on a pedestal. They are, but there's a lot more happening to those men. And there there are with us, those of us that are in the public eye in any way, shape, or form. I don't look at myself like the Carson Daly that so many people look at me as. look, I just am happy to have my job. I've always kept it simple. I've never been happier than when I made $18,000 a year at 23 when I lived in San Francisco and lived with my sister. I'm very aware of that time. And I have all this stuff now. It doesn't mean anything to me. I want to be good to people. I got a short amount of time on this earth. And I want to do what's right. I want to to die and go revisit my dad and my mom in heaven and, and hopefully Jesus. You know, like the one day at a time. And that's really like my philosophy.
3: We love that philosophy. That's the philosophy we use in recovery too. One yeah. day at a time and the, the day stack and the stack, it's just that positive momentum that creates an unshakable foundation, but it is, it's one day at a time. When you look back in your struggles with mental health and anxiety and your panic disorder, what would you say was like your lowest point mm-hmm. or like your bottom when it comes to, to mental health?
2: God, such a great question. I I think when, once I was diagnosed and once I understood that I was in need of figuring out, well, once I understood the model of anxiety, now I just want to preface everything I'm saying for anybody who's watching this, because it's so personal. These are the things that worked for me in this timeline. And it's very different for other people who have anxiety or any other mental situation. So this is just by no means what I'm suggesting for anybody. I chose cognitive therapy because I felt like There was a stigma on prescription drugs. I didn't want to get on a drug. I wanted to understand and know. I was a theology major in college. I'm Catholic, I'm guilt ridden, but my faith is the number one thing in my life. And so a lot of my self examining is also intertwined with my just deep rooted faith based thinking, my just general Christianity, if you will. So I wanted to really examine the idea of this anxiety. And so cognitive therapy was great for me because after a while, Like the first thing that my therapist did was he wanted me to sit and start breathing. He wanted me to hyperventilate on purpose because what that would do is recall the physiological reactions of the cousin reactions of a real panic attack, right? Your heart rate comes up, you get warm and that will trigger panic. He wanted to trigger panic, Donnie. And I was like, this is everything I do in my life to avoid. I've stopped almost traveling now, but that was so great because I ended up understanding that the threat that I was perceiving it's a miscommunication between my brain and my body. So I started to understand when those fight or flight things, that, that panic came up, that that threat wasn't there. So this is just something in my brain, it's the way I was hardwired. Just understanding that helped quell the threat. But before I really understood that, I was at a very small window in my life where I was diagnosed, I was trying to figure it out. I was still living a very you know high-profile life, but my world was getting smaller. And what can happen with people with anxiety and panic disorder and certainly other situations is that I was afraid, and this is my lowest, I was afraid of becoming agoraphobic. I was afraid of like, your world gets smaller because you're more and more scared. Wherever you, I had a panic attack, I would never go back to that place. I had one in Aspen, Colorado, must be the altitude. I've never been back since to this day. I had one sitting on a window seat on a commercial flight. I've never sat at a window seat. If I had one at my best friend's house, I was never going back. Because those are the triggers that you feel are going to re ignite the the, the panic. And the panic is so intense and so scary and so hard to describe that you will do anything to not put yourself in a position to reignite it. And what happens as a default of that? You don't go anywhere. You don't go anywhere. So cognitive therapy was great for me because at the core of its philosophy is to face your fear and end up ultimately embracing it, which a lot of people who work out a lot can probably relate to that because it's that idea of breaking through. The light is on the other side. And so thank God I, I, that worked for me to break through that. And my world ended up going, I, I was like, Jesus did not put me on this earth to sit in this bedroom and curl up in a ball. And I'm going to face this. I'm going to figure it out. I've been blessed to have an opportunity to travel to Jamaica for spring break. Guess what? I'm getting on the plane. I'm going to grill, And that's what I did. I just willed my way through that until I had a much better understanding. And I understood some tools that I could help me get through it to be where I am today. That was my lowest, was thinking my world was going to get this small. And by the way, that gets to a really dark place. That can put people in because it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. And then you get to a red line place of who knows what could happen. I'm glad that I never really got to that place. But I also had a terrible panic attack once in Santa Barbara, where I literally had to leave my wife and my children and run back to the hotel room. That was a very low moment as a man, as a father, but now as a mental health advocate. I'm not apologetic for it and because I did what I had to do. So I don't let my ego get in the way of that. My wife is totally capable of taking care of our children. And my children understand my disposition now. So that was what it was. But it was also at the time, a very low moment when you're literally running away from your small children.
3: I'm glad that you brought up your lowest moment was that moment that created a whole new level of awareness where everything in what you just shared, I heard was the only way we get through it is to go through it. Correct. And actually turn and face what we've been wanting to run and hide from. Because on the other side of it is liberation and freedom. I teach yoga and meditation and you're doing oh. the exact same things in a yoga pose or in a meditation practice. And it's just so powerful because if we keep running, like you said, if we keep our world so small to the point where we're in isolation, then the story we're telling ourselves is we're alone. Nobody understands. And this is the point we just had Drew Robinson on. He's the baseball player for the uh, San Francisco Giants who attempted to commit suicide and live, uh-huh. which that story's on ESPN Alive. It was one of their specials, which is captivating and mind-blowing. But that's his story. You were going down that road. You weren't, but you were saying that's what it
2: leads to. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I don't know where it would have led to. And I just, you know, the meditation is new for me and I love it. It, it reminds me of like today I was thinking about the Leonard Cohen I was an artist, Canadian artist, but had a line, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, which I'm sure you know. And today, now my whole new routine is I wake up and I meditate. And the meditation today was on kintsugi, which is the sort of Japanese art form where that goes back centuries to where they would take broken vases and glasses, teacups, and people would throw them away, they were broken, and they would collect them. And then they would take a fine precious metal like gold or silver or platinum and rebuild them. Just the whole idea being people don't look at something as broken as being broken, but look at that brokenness with reverence and look at the potential of the brokenness and create something even more valuable than what it was originally. So those sorts of things to meditate on, those are the things that really help my sort of day-to-day, my stacking, is are, are those teachings that you often find in things like meditation. They're helpful.
3: And you took my next question, which was, what was the story you had to stop telling yourself in order to start to tell your comeback
2: we were on the air on the today show and it happened really organically i uh demar de wrote an article about mental health uh, that inspired kevin love who wrote an article for the player's tribune cheater's deal which i read and was like oh my god here's an alpha male athlete famous person at a, at the height of his career running at halftime off the court into the locker room into the shower into the fetal position i'm like that was me that's what i told you 10 15 minutes ago like that was me people think i'm on the voice everything's perfect or in in mexico like the perception is things are wonderful when inside it's quite the opposite and that's a lesson for humanity that's not just something we are going to discover about famous people it's the way that we're going to look at everybody that there's the outside and there's the inside. And so when Kevin did that article, I was sitting at the table with Savannah Guthrie and Craig Melvin and Hoda and my, our, my colleagues. And I said out loud, we weren't on the TV. I said, God, that, that happened to me. Like, that's I deal with this right now. I, I never thought to tell anybody. And Craig Melvin, my colleague, when we got out of it, the piece said, you know, Carson, you've dealt with something like that before. And I was like, yeah, I'm diagnosed. And I started talking about it, Donnie, because no one ever asked me. So the breakthrough moment was never like where I could cognitively had to go, okay, stop living the lie, stop being in denial, and let's go public with it. It really wasn't that for me. It was more of the opportunity never rose. And when it did, it's ironic. Now I own the mental health space on NBC News, and it's my passion now. And I'd rather have these discussions than interview like anybody in the world like this stuff is so important to me and being honest and vulnerable in a public forum like i'm so honored to be able to do if it helps people so that was a breakthrough moment for me but it was a really positive one and i'm just glad that i was raised to not have i don't know i guess all these sort of normal walls that like some people who are on television do or the pressure to feel that they have to present themselves a certain way maybe it's just a punk rock fan in me i honestly just don't give a shit what people think. I'm telling you, like, this is who I am. I'm telling you right now. I'll tell you all day long. See me on TV or off TV. You're not going to catch me slipping. This is how I roll. This is the vibe. I. This is what I'm dealing with. This is my past. I own it. And scars are souvenirs you never lose, according to my friend Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls.
1: I think it's amazing how you said like, you, you own that mental health space on NBC now. And it's. I feel like it does numbers when somebody that's very recognizable takes that stance of authenticity and is willing to, you know, champion that cause. And I want to know, what does that look like for you now today? I saw uh, how you've partnered up with uh, Project Healthy Minds. Yeah, What are some of the things that you're into today that light that fire for you as far as mental health? Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm really inspired by yourself,
2: and I'm not saying this because you're here, but I think that you really have that, that you do the same thing, like you've owned it in, in in your space and in your sport, and you wear it like a badge of honor, and it's still something that you're doing and dealing with and you're brave. And I see it because I'm a fan and a friend. And so that inspires me. So now it looks like if I'm in a meeting and anybody wants to have a conversation about anybody, about anything in the mental health and wellness, I'm like, no, that's mine. Get off that. No, but I I do. I just interviewed Morgan Neville, who's an Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker. He won an Oscar for a movie called 20 Feet from Stardom. It's a documentary about background singers. So that's what perked me up because it was a music thing about background singers it was so well done he won an Oscar for it anyway he just did the Anthony Bourdain documentary and I loved Anthony Bourdain I loved his TV show I didn't know him but his TV show I loved because I like food and I like to travel but I don't really travel that much I'm not in Paquette or I'm not in Europe that often so I loved his show and I liked how he would go into a little street food and drink beer and talk to the locals and he kept it so real and so to answer your question in a long way now My motivation at my job at NBC News or the Today Show, for instance, is to find these important stories and do an interview and and do a piece on it and try and shine a light on it to keep this conversation just constantly flowing on the Today Show and elsewhere. And so that was really eye-opening. And it's broad. I did a story. I have a digital series also that we started called Mind Matters, where I do a lot of just what you guys are doing. I guess it would be like my podcast, if you will. And we talked to so many great people about these issues. Same thing that you guys are doing. We did one today, uh, a lady named Teresa Green. We talk about disordered eating, you know, and breaking the stigma of that. When I was growing up, eating disorders were like teenage girls who were, you know, had weight issues who were making themselves throw up. It was bulimia. That's just a stereotype. That's not the problem. Disordered eating is a major problem. Almost 10% of the entire global population will experience an eating disorder. It's also the entire spectrum of, of mental health and wellness. Eating disorders are the second deadliest behind opioids. Like, who knew that? So anyway, I'm saying that because that was my morning today. Actually, we filed that story on on the 9 o'clock hour of the Today Show today. So I spent my time last night researching and understanding more about eating disorders. And that's my passion. That makes me excited. That's like you being in the film room before you play the Chiefs and you really care about understanding where your openings might be in the defense. That's your job. That's your passion. I get to do that now a lot in the mental health and wellness space in, in, a, in a very public way. And I'm really grateful to be able to do
1: that. Yeah, you said it right there, grateful. Um, grateful. I, I know in my life before, I never would have thought that I would feel most alive when I'm putting myself out there in a vulnerable fashion or trying to help somebody else get through what they're going through. I thought once I get the contract or the car or whatever, that's when I'll be grateful. And I'm sure right. you know maybe at some point in your life being on TRL and putting up number one hits and things like that, like life couldn't get any better, but now here you are. And I'm sure like this stuff lights you on fire. And I just want to ask you, what are you most grateful for today? Grateful for my kids, but I want to ask you, what was the
2: moment? It's one thing to recover. And then it's one thing to maybe raise a flag about that. And you have a second lease on an NFL life or a new team, a new opportunity second chance that are important and those stories are important to kids mm-hmm. but you've taken it so much further what happened specifically that triggered inside of you that said all right i'm gonna wear this i'm gonna own this and this isn't going to be something that in an interview i'm gonna have my public say hey please don't ask darren about his mental status right now it's not something he wants to talk about you actually want to talk about it when did that happen mm-hmm.
1: So that's funny that you say that, because I remember going into a uh, training camp in 2019. Some of our front office people and media people were like, yeah, if Hard Knocks is probably going to want to talk to you. If you don't want to say anything, you don't have to. We can keep them away from you. And I was just like, no, nah, like, I'm fine. Like I'm, that, I can, I'll I talk about whatever. And um, I feel like that willingness came from just doing like the, the 12-step work in recovery meetings and really getting to the point where it was like, my whole life I was searching for this feeling and I was searching for it through drugs, and alcohol and trying to fit in and getting with women. The that feeling I was searching for came when I was able to impact somebody else. Yeah. And I knew that going into that. So I was like, you know, no matter how I am to be received or what goes on with this, I feel like it's important for me to do this. Somebody will be able to benefit from this. Seeing some guy on TV that's covered in tattoos and is in a, in a, Macho man's game, putting his brokenness on display for people yeah i some I just felt that in my core that it would do so much more than me just you know being successful now and me just hiding away and not telling anybody about anything what that was going on. I felt like I needed to do that for you know for the world, but that's so special, darren, because everybody, everybody, especially
2: people in your position, by and large historically has chosen the other path. So you're the road less traveled. Like that. I, like to me, that's the stuff of greatness. And you're not doing it because you have to. It's how you feel. And like, I feel the same way. I know Kevin Love feels the same way. There are others who feel the same way. And that's why this little society, and I love that like now feels since post-pandemic or even pandemic, which exacerbated so much. I love that this national conversation seems to be out there in the forefront a little bit more because the stories yield stories. and People see Aaron Waller, oh my God, are like, oh, they're that, loser from MTV. They're talking real stuff, man. They're vulnerable. I thought they were millionaires on private jets and have perfect lives and perfect wives and all this stuff. And it's like, oh man, get all that out the way. First of (laughs) all, none of that stuff matters anyway, right? From a non-mental health perspective, that's not how we should look at people. Secondly, no, those things don't equate to happiness, man. So I just, honestly, I wouldn't be doing all this work if it wasn't for a very small handful of people. Even that kick in the stigma event that we did recently or getting hooked up with Project Healthy Minds, which is an organization that came to me. And one goal I had was I didn't want to just be like a mouthpiece. I was like, man, what more can I do? Like for real, like uh, when the cameras are off, I-, I want to do something. Maybe I don't even tell anybody about. And then I got in touch with this, this nonprofit and they do great work trying to break the stigma. And, and they have a very strong, a millennial presence, be diverse group of the board and the people that are involved and a very heavy sort of political c- uh, connection. And so legislation was something that came to mind. I was like, man, we really want to make a difference, but what's one way to do it? We talk about changing the laws, you're getting your hands dirty. And that's, so this group was a good fit for me and I was lucky enough to join the board. And and so they do all this data stuff. So I feel like I have this home where I can get all this crazy data on mental health in the country and, and the better access and information to when I'm talking, I can be educated and whatnot. So that's been cool.
3: I'm glad you asked Darren that question because as Darren's explaining it and you're explaining it, it's like it's all connected the dots that's led us to this moment of us three talking. Where yeah. I first connected with Darren because I w- saw him on Hard Knocks and I'm laying in bed with my fiance watching Hard Knocks and I have this gentleman talking publicly about his recovery. And I'm like, this is my dude. Mm-hmm. I have to meet this guy. I've been working with some professional athletes doing mindset coaching and yoga meditation stuff. I'm like, this is my guy. I've got to connect with him through Instagram. No way. Yeah. This was the Darren story hits the air on hard knocks. And I, I think I caught him before his followers took off. So he was very responsive right away and said, let's do it. Let's start working together. So we started working together and doing some coaching with him. And then it turned into just a unshakable friendship that led to this podcast and just to hear it. Right. So this is like what it's all about. It's giving people permission and bankrupting the story of I'm alone. Nobody understands because now who knows how many people this will reach, but it can bankrupt that story. If they think they're, I thought I was alone and nobody understands and everybody's out to get me when I was at my rock bottom. So this us talking about it, bankrupts that story and it reminds us that we're never alone. And we can't do this thing called life alone. I don't care how strong you think your mental health is.
2: I think what makes me nervous is the idea of especially young people, but certainly everybody that uh, is suffering in silence. And to think that I might have an opportunity. And I don't mean that in an egotistical way like the I have an opportunity. I'm like just me as a person have an opportunity to maybe help. Like it's, keep me up at night, to be honest with you. It's so important. And you're right, I guess one of the great things of social media, and I'm not a huge fan these days, but the connectivity part of it, connecting you to Darren, these moments happen, like you said, two people hear this, I'm sure thousands of people will hear it, if it helps unlock them. I know what little it took to unlock me was reading one article by Kevin Love in the, you know, Players' Tribune, or doing the kick in the stigma and talking to Hayden Hurst and Darren and a bunch of NFL players who I admire, And I didn't realize that there was a group of guys in the NFL who think a lot like me about life and have had challenges and overcome and then choose to dive into it and help others. Yeah, it's a really big, I don't know. It's like a growing society. It's really exciting to see. I hope that people are being helped. So the suicide rates are alarming. And I don't know, man. I just, I worry so much. I love your podcast, This, because I don't like to say I'm a busy guy and I am busy. I have four kids. So you ask me, what am I most grateful for? I have four children. That's it. Like, that's all I got. Again, like my faith in God is number one. My, is she here? Okay, yes. My wife and my kids, even at number two. Um, and yeah, man, that's, but I don't know. I don't have a lot of time for bullshit, I guess. is That's what I'm saying. Like, there's no point to dance around it. Like, I'll be raw, real. I'll tell you straight up. I love real conversation. Like, I love like local hip hop radio stations. And I always have. I've always worked at the alternative rock stations like K-Rock in LA, but I would always listen to Power 106 in LA just because I can relate more for some reason. I love like the real talk. I've always been a fan of that, even like the Howard Stern. And so in the mental health space, there's not a lot of places you can go to and just hear people just break it down. And you guys offer that the platform. Like I've never discussed my own situation this candidly that I have not been wanting to be candid, but there hasn't been many forms to be able to. It's amazing.
3: Speaking of social media, so if you were to get like one 140 character text to maybe send to yourself from the future or to somebody else out there that's struggling, what would that say?
2: I mean, the typical stuff, like the first things that come to mind, you're not alone. You're going to be okay. You're going to understand everything you don't understand right now. You're going to find happiness. You're going to be a great father. You're going to be better. You're going to be better. Go back to the the Japanese art form, a broken teacup that's put back together using solid gold, like You're not broken. In fact, you're going to come back and you're going to be more valuable and better than ever. Just believe that. It it seems impossible now, but stay open to one iota of potential that is true. Just keep it in the back of your mind. Even if you don't believe it, just try to hold on to that morsel of hope. That's probably more than 140 characters, but it'd be stuff like that.
1: Mm. I love what you say. That reminds me of having faith the size of a mustard seed. Yeah. And being able to to move mountains with that, I I love hearing stuff like that. I want to ask you, what would you say to somebody that knows what's holding them back, knows that they have anxiety, know that they're in that place, but they don't know necessarily what to do next? What would you say to that person, Darren? That's probably the most important point, right? That's such an important
2: place. The the quick answer, I think, is if you're like, okay, like this is me, I can relate. Maybe I have anxiety. I don't definitively know what it is or clinically but okay i'm listening to these guys and everything's familiar what do i do now like i think two things number one everybody talks about therapy to me seems like such a one percent play in a lot of ways like who can like get a therapist like the average person doesn't have access to a therapist like in general especially in communities of color which is another area that is a very important area that we do a lot of work in because the stigmas are greater access to care and and stuff is is harder to come by so i'd say again sounds silly but like talking you if you confide in somebody, I did my friend John Rifkin, like my, one of my good friends. We ended up having a conversation and it wasn't what it's no- a normal conversation about headlines on ESPN or just like this or that or this girl or that. What are you doing tonight? Or what's the spot? What's the play? Where are you headed? It was just like, uh, man, I'm so scared. I keep getting, sc- I'm scared. What do you mean you're scared? I don't know, man. I feel like my heart races a lot. Like I get so scared and I can't for the life of me think why Like it's Friday night. Like everything's good. I keep checking on myself. Like why is everything good? Yeah, everything's good. So why am I so nervous, man? What are you nervous about? Let's like, just start a conversation, you know, like whatever it is and then unravel, unlock. And then if you're with the right person at the right time, they're going to say something. And now you're doing this, right? You're having a real conversation. You're not putting up a facade and, 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 even if nothing comes out of that conversation, I promise you'll feel a hundred times better just talking about this stuff and having somebody hear you talk about it and maybe offer something and say something, and that'll lead to just a greater exploration of your courage to talk about it in other venues and then maybe find the right person um, to talk about it with. A lot of it. A lot of it's clergy, you know. I mean, I don't know. People go to church. You can talk to your clergy. That's a good place for some for people to go. There's a lot of, of places out there. I hope people can find people to talk to because it really it is the key. But I think another big area of all this is just mental health. Is just now just it's just one big clump, right? It's like when the internet was formed and it was just the wild west and there was user generated content and then the super information highway. It just hadn't stretched out to be vertical and passionate and niche and what it is now. It's an, mental health. We define it by stigmas and drugs and anxieties lumped in the same thing as PST and suicide and alcoholism and dependencies. There's so much. We just need to do a better job, I feel, of having these conversations and start to break these things out and and help people find a path because it's not all the same. I resisted medicine for a long time, but then through my sort of personal discovery, I realized that my body My brain absorbs too much serotonin. So I've gone down a path where I started to take something that after about three or four months has offered my general anxiety disorder a lot of relief and that's been beneficial. But that's been married with a ton of tools of meditation and breathing. And just recently, even I've discovered the importance of gratitude. I never knew what that meant. Feeling grateful is like such an important thing, man. And I like practice that now. Like I practice trying to understand and be grateful. And those help counteract a lot of the ailments that I have in the mental health space because it just makes you more positive. Donnie, that's your area. You know all about that meditation. For people who don't meditate, I never meditated a lot. How does somebody just start to meditate? Do you think they should download calm?
3: Yeah, I think the common response. So when someone finds out I teach meditation, the common response is I can't meditate and my mind never stops thinking. That was me. Yeah. And my response is nobody's does. So you give your mind something to to focus on one thing, be it the The breath, a candle, a song, a mantra, whatever, one thing. And then when your mind strays away from it, you just bring it back. And it's not a bad thing when your mind strays away. When you notice it, that's awareness. And when you bring it back, it's like doing a rep with a free weight. Your mind is getting stronger every time you notice it and come back because you're practicing awareness and what we practice will grow stronger. So now we become aware of the thoughts, like we don't have control over the thoughts that come in our head, but we do have control over the attachment to our thoughts and the judgment and the labeling of those thoughts and what we want to hold on to. So I always say awareness loosens the grip in a natural way so we can start to let go of the thoughts that aren't serving us. And then sometimes in meditation, there's inspiring thoughts and you hold on to those, but I would say the best way to start is to start small with an app like Calm or Aura, A-U-R-A is a great one because they give you a free three-minute meditation every single day. It'll ask you your mood, if you're feeling anxious, sad, happy, can't sleep. And so just start small. If I were to say start and meditate 10 minutes a day, it doesn't feel attainable. So we end up giving up on it, but it's all about just the consistency. So choosing what you're going to do, start two to three minutes. There's no right or wrong way to do it. We just do it. For me, the morning meditation, like sacred winning the morning and having a morning ritual is life-changing. Darren's is so dialed in and it is the foundation for the rest of our day. But if we start like I used to do, start my day grabbing my phone and looking at text, email, social media. So I'm starting my day in reaction and distraction and reactivity. My foundation is shaky. I have a few little wins like gratitude, journaling. Reading and and meditation before I look at my phone, mm-hmm. life changing. But I'll tell you, some days that phone is still sitting there like crack, <laughs> waiting there. Yep. Especially if I got something that I know I really want to see that's on there. But I'm choosing me first. So I yep. would say choose when you're going to do it. Attach it to something you already do. So every morning before I brush my teeth, or every morning after coffee. That's the easiest way to create a new habit is to attach it to something you already do. So. That's the long-winded answer, but I would say that just start and, and there's no wrong way to do it. Don't try not to think because if you go in and you try not to think, you'll just think more because what we resist persists. So yep. you just go in and you just do it and just commit to doing it and notice and come back and notice and come back or maybe focus on the breath. There's so many different ways we can do it. I think it's just starting and not letting the same mind we're trying to control, talk us out of doing it and saying, you're doing it wrong. You can't do it. This is a waste. Right. you should be doing something else. So that's the same chatter we're trying to quiet.
2: I love that. I, I've been doing that. And it's life changing to start your day that way and to kick off gratitude and to meditate. And I've been working a lot on non reactivity. As I'm trying to as scanning my body and, and and noticing things, I'm trying to not react to what I'm noticing, because it's okay, whatever I'm experiencing. And These are all great themes for somebody like myself who struggles with, you know, my mind races. I have compound worry. So I think about something that I can't control and then 10 other things compound on top of that. Now I'm in the rabbit hole of worry about something that I can't even control that's in the future or the past. And a lot of people can relate to this stuff. But to your point, just try it. If you had asked me to shut my eyes and sit still for 30 seconds, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it because it would have conjured up my my endocrine system as a Ferrari, right? So I know what I have to work with now. Like I have to learn how to drive my car, if you will. And so now through meditation and breathing, it's amazing. I can do things with my mind and and I can start my day with my level of anxiety. I always imagine it being like, if I wake up with a cup of water and that's the water is my anxiety. As I go through my day, if I pick up my phone and I'm being reactionary and all this stuff and I start to worry, I start to get this way, the water starts to slosh over the edge. When it sloshes over, that's when panic sets in. So basically what I'm doing now symbolically is starting with my water. When I meditate, when I don't pick up my phone, when I give myself 10 minutes and I breathe and I think about gratitude and I think about seeing my kids for the first time or kissing my wife or I look outside and the light's out and God's chosen to give me another 24 hours and that's just today. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to be the best husband, the best father, the best citizen, the best neighbor, whatever that I can be. That's all I'm going to focus on today. And then I breathe and then I learn a little story or whatever it is. I've taken this cup of worry and I've just dumped it out. And now I'm starting at zero for the rest of my day. So, Donnie, I don't have to worry about the sloshing effect because I've just taken everything and just lowered it.
3: Yeah. And it's a constant practice of surrender, release. We got to let it go daily, let it go, yeah. release, release and invite, release the old so we can bring in the new. If those old thoughts, Those old habits, all that negative thinking is taking up the space. There's no room for fresh perspective and possibilities. So you said it's a daily practice of surrender, of letting go, because we can either let go or be dragged. And I feel like I just posted about this today that the heaviest burdens we carry are the ones in our head.
2: Yeah, for sure.
3: Having a practice. It's all about being in the practice because what we practice will grow stronger. So we have to practice there's no perfection in this thing we just practice why so we can be free and it's not free for ourselves it's being free from ourselves really right to me is like where we step into our power
2: is that is part of the 12 step program that the idea of the compartmentalizing like one day at a time like how does that play out for you every day like how much do you concentrate on just the day in front of you or and then how far forward do you allow yourself to get
1: I got just for today tatted on my wrist. Okay, that's that's really all it's about. It's not the worrying things start to creep in when we want to redo the past and go back and fix everything, or we want to have our future just right before we even get there, even though there's no way that we can control it. So it's the just, it's the just for today. It's one day at a time. It's the Serenity Prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So it's all about. How can I stay right here in, in the moment? Because I can complicate things like crazy up here in my head. But when I'm here in the moment, that's when you know things tend to happen a lot better than I think they'll happen. How hard has it been for you to be able to do that like successfully every day? Is it still a challenge? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely not perfection by any means. But the more I do it, the more I find beauty and the simple things I can instead of I can be at a red light instead of beating the steering wheel up, I could be looking up at the clouds and, and it's, just all, it's just all about what I'm looking at. It's all about my perspective and it's definitely helped change my perspective to where maybe like a little stock market graph where yeah. it goes down a little bit, but it's always trending yeah. up in a positive direction.
2: But what about at work? What if you lose a close game and you are experiencing legit
1: frustration, anger, some of those kind of thoughts? How do you keep that in the world? It's just all coming back to the state of... Uh, you know, a, one day doesn't define me. Uh, one result doesn't define me. It's, it's, a, it's a process. It's all life. It's all one big journey. And staying in that journey is the most rewarding part. Whenever I jump to results or stats or anything like that, that's when I'm confining myself to the way the world might define me or the way the, the world says I should act after a loss. Whereas the scoreboard said loss, but I can take good things and bad things and constructively move forward in my process because it doesn't end that day. Now, they didn't yeah. count king if I had 200 yards in that game. you know the, the, the day still continued. Practice is still waiting on me. So it's just right. all about realizing that you know no one day or one moment is as big as a, I may try to make it seem. Right. That's great perspective, I think, no matter what you do for a living. I'm going to steal that. Thanks.
3: <laughs> we know you got to run. We don't do this alone. We can't do it alone. We've always had people in our corner, always had our back, no matter what. Who for you gets your comeback story shout out?
2: I don't know, man. I got to shout out God. My faith is just, it's too strong, Donnie. I'm tethered to it. I'm committed to it. And it's not even just, I'll I'll categorize it as saying, it's my faith, my ability to let go and let God, if you will, not to use a bumper sticker, is just so important. That's how I wake up. I'd be remiss without shouting out God. If it has to be a human, I have to say Dr. Oakley, who was my first therapist who diagnosed me with GAD and and panic disorder, who I've recently rekindled with. And I jumped back into therapy with him for some tune-ups and to learn some more. And that's been a 20-year process. And so I appreciate not just him, but those people out there in the the mental health and wellness space who are writing the books on this stuff, for those of us who are dealing with it, I'm appreciative of their efforts.
3: Well, man, we want to acknowledge you for, for how you're showing up, your honesty, your vulnerability, and just your realness. I've been watching you on The Voice for years, and I always got that vibe from you. Just the the way you connect to uh, your co host and the contestants. Even back in the day on MTV, I always got that sense from you. So I want to acknowledge you personally just for how you show up in the world and the impact that
1: you're making.
2: Well, it's not necessary, Donny, but I very much appreciate the words and and thank you for all that that you're doing, man. You're an inspiration to me as well.
1: Mm. Thanks for being on here today, Carson. We really appreciate you making time for us, man. This was amazing.
2: Darren, it's a pleasure. And again, I, it's, it's selfish because talking about all this stuff, is for those listening, this is what helps. I think the three of us will get off this. We're going to be better than we were an hour ago, and people will experience that. if They can just have, find the courage to talk. It's okay. But thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, sir.
3: We appreciate you, and we're out.
1: what I represent, staying true till I'm six down, it might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned.
3: start listening